I remember the very first time I laid eyes on you. It was love at first sight. I'm afraid it took me a little longer. Okay. Well, anyway, I remember our first date. We went out and it was in that big boat of a car, that Pontiac Catalina. I remember. And you were sitting right next to me. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, well, close to me anyway. Anyway, my heart was beating so hard that I thought it was going to beat right out of my chest. I could hear it beating on the other side of the car. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty loud. Anyway, uh, I remember Crown College, not a big school. Everywhere I was, you were there in the hallway, you were there in the cafeteria, you were there in the classrooms, in the gymnasium. I was running into you everywhere. That's because you were stalking me. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I remember when I finally made up my mind, you were the one. We've been dating a whole long three months. And I said to you, Marcia, would you marry me? And I'll give you a little time to think about it. About two minutes. That's a really long time. <laughs> well, the big day came. You had that beautiful wedding dress on, and I wore my white tuxedo with a white cummerbund. And I think you also wore white sweat socks with red stripes. <sighs> it was all I had left in my drawer. Anyway, I'm gonna let you all in on a little secret. I married an older woman. Ow! Supposed to say that. Well, not that much older. Anyway, uh, May 19th, we will be married 39 wonderful years. Well, they were desperate for another couple to sit on the couch. <laughs> Could you guys hear um, my bone cracking when she when she kicked it, I'm still recovering. <laughs> Actually, she kicked the couch, so she, I want to make Marsh feel bad. But anyway, uh, we are in the next to the last message in our series, The Meaning of Intimacy. We've been looking at the Song of Solomon. So turn to chapter 5 and 6, where we'll be today. Next weekend's Mother's Day. We're not going to be in Song of Solomon. Following weekend, we got a special message I want to share with you. We'll conclude the series Memorial Day weekend because that's when we know the most people go to church. And um, <laughs> we're going to do it in a Q&A fashion, all right? And so if you would like to send in your questions, there's a website you can do that uh, based on the series, any questions you have, and we'll answer it that way. It should be an interesting message, and hopefully you'll be here for that. As we've looked at the Song of Solomon last weekend, we saw how King Solomon and the Shulamite were on their honeymoon. And we talked about principles for building or rebuilding intimacy in a marriage relationship. This weekend, we're going to talk about how to resolve conflict in marriage. But the principles are broad enough that you can use many of them, not all, but many of them in resolving all kinds of conflicts with your parents, with your kids, with your coworkers. I have heard it said that sometimes even churches have conflict. So you may be able to use it there, all right? So I think there's a lot, a lot of help we can get out of the message this weekend. I want to start with the Shulamite getting ready for bed. She is combing out her long hair, which Solomon said reminded him of flocks of goats going down the hillside. She's brushing her teeth, and it took her a long time because, as we learned from Solomon's words a week ago, she had all of her teeth, unusual in those days, and 
So she gets them all brushed. She pinches, she plucks, she perfumes. She gets under the sheets and she's ready to go to bed when there is a knock at the door. It's Solomon. He's been working late. I'm not sure what was going on, but he's knocking. You might be wondering, well, why is he knocking at the door? Why doesn't he just go in? It's his bedroom too. Well, back in those days, it was not unusual for the king's residence to be separate from the queen's residence. That might be the case here. Anyway, he knocks at the door, and I want you to watch what happens. Chapter 5 and verse 2. She's speaking. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Guys, there's so much we can learn from Solomon. (laughs) Next time you're trying to get in the house or the bathroom or whatever it is, now you know what to say. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. She responds and she says, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? How many of you would agree that has all the makings of a marital conflict? <laughs> Put yourself in the story. Maybe that'll help you a little bit more. I want you to imagine you come home, husband or wife, doesn't matter, either way you want to play it, in the middle of January when it's sub-zero. You've forgotten your keys. You knock, no answer. You ring the bell, no answer. You get your cell phone out, and you manage to be able to hit the right keys without your fingers freezing off. The phone rings, your spouse answers it, and you say, I'm standing outside, I forgot my keys, please let me in. And they say to you, I just got in bed. I just got ready for bed. I'm warm and I'm comfortable. I really, 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 do I really have to get up and let you in? How many of you would be just a tad bit upset with that? (laughs) I'm guessing you'd be very upset with that, wouldn't you? Because, come on, let me in. Can you, imagine, can you imagine Solomon? Hey, I'm the king in this kingdom. Let me in. That's my home too. There are a lot of things that can cause conflicts in our relationships. And so I thought we'd kind of look at some of those. Again, many of these are particular to marriage, but it goes beyond that as well. Let's look at a few of them. Certainly, failure to communicate is oftentimes the cause of a lot of trouble in any kind of relationship, from work to home to school to church to marriage. And what is communication anyway? It's two things. One, it's speaking words, and words are just the way we convey what we feel inside. And the other part of communication is listening to what is being said. What do you think is the hardest part of communication, speaking or listening? How many of you say listening? Absolutely, right? It's really hard to do, especially when what the other person's telling you is something you don't like or you disagree with or you feel is wrong. Right away, there's a voice inside of you that's shouting, saying, I got to get my words in too. And when that voice is shouting inside of us, it's really hard to hear the other person. Failure to communicate. Secondly, financial difficulties, whether it's mismanaging the budget, whether it's misspending and too much indebtedness or you know, loss of a job, a third cause of conflict, sexual frustrations, misunderstandings, a fourth cause of conflict, outlaws, outlaws. So what do you mean by outlaws? I'm talking about when in-laws get involved in your family, in your marriage, uninvited, or they invite themselves in, they become outlaws. And by the way, those of you who are younger and married, 
Let me just remind you, the worst thing you can ever do is ask your parents to help you resolve a conflict. Parents can't help but side with blood, all right? Lead them out of it. Get somebody else to help you with it. Next is raising kids. Raising kids can be a source of conflict in a relationship because kids uh, know how to pit parents against each other. Kids know how to, you know, frustrate certain things. They know what buttons to push. We don't always agree how to discipline our kids. I mean, a lot of things that go with that. And so when conflict happens, we try to resolve conflict. And unfortunately, we sometimes try to resolve it the wrong way. And so Tommy Nelson, in his commentary on the Song of Solomon, uh, delves into this a little bit, and he talks about some of the things we should never do. I thought we'd visit that together. <clears throat> he said we should never speak harshly. Never speak harshly. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 says, A gentle answer deflects anger. My harsh words make tempers flare. Let me read that again. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. Have you ever noticed sometimes in a conflict, whether it's at home or at work or some other place, usually one person starts here upset, you know, intense, emotional, rather loud. Maybe the other person starts here, the one that's caught off guard. But quickly, the tendency is to go from here and match this. What we understand is that the right way to handle this is not to go up there and match the same intensity, but to stay here and get them to come down in intensity. John Gottam, who's a marriage counselor, a specialist, says that the way you begin a conflict is probably the way you're going to end it. So if I start loud, I'll end loud. If I start angry, I'll probably end angry. If I start intense, I'll probably end in an intense way. If I start gentle, if I start listening, if I start with grace, more than likely, that's how it will end, or at least how I will end. How do you start your conflicts? If you're in a conflict right now with someone, wherever it is, whoever it is, at what level are you? You can actually start to bring it down by making the choice right now to be slow to speak, slow to anger, as James says, and quick to listen. Never speak harshly. Secondly, Never confront publicly. In Matthew chapter 18, I think it's verse 15, Jesus said, if you realize that you're making a sacrifice or at the altar that there's a problem between you and somebody else, go handle it privately. Don't handle it publicly. Don't shame that person, whether it's your coworker, whether it's an employee, whether it's a friend, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your kids. Don't shame them. Don't, don't do it publicly because when you do it publicly, that's what you're trying to do, right? We're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it too. You gotta work on that. Thirdly, Never use children. Never use children. You know, if you're, if you're parents and you've got your kids and you're fighting, go have your fight somewhere else, but not in front of your kids. Because what will happen is it will polarize the kids because they feel like i gotta, I got to defend somebody in this situation. And I love mom and I love dad. What, what am I going to do with this? And if a child has a sense of responsibility, they will end up owning the fight. I must be the cause. I must be the reason this is going on right now. You don't want that. Or if there's chronic arguing and fighting going on at home, you know what, the kids, they want to escape. They'll look for a way to escape. And oftentimes, especially for young women, the, the route of escape is another guy. 
Because mom and dad aren't focusing on me, they're just focusing on each other. There's always trouble in this relationship. I want love, I want somebody to accept me, some guy pays attention to them, and boom, you got all kinds of problems. Never use children, never get historical. You say, Pastor, you made a mistake, you meant hysterical. No, I meant historical. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Some of us, isn't it amazing the things you, you wish you could forget, but you remember? And things you wish you could remember, but you keep forgetting? Isn't it interesting how we remember things that have been said or done to us, and we can bring them up later on? Gotta let it go. Never involve family. All right said, don't make your in-laws outlaws. And then next, never win by reasoning and arguing. Some of you are good lawyers. You don't even have a degree in law. You're just really good at arguing. You're just good at reasoning. And you're good at setting little traps and cornering your spouse or cornering your friend or cornering your coworker and making them look like a fool. And you kind of get a little bit of joy out of that because it gives you a sense of superiority and this will teach you to argue with me. That's sinful, that's wrong. And eventually, if you keep doing that, that spouse is just gonna say, I'm out of here, forget it. I'm not gonna live with this. Or that coworker or that friend will just say, forget you, I don't need this. It's not healthy. And last but not least, never physical harm. Keep your hands to yourself. So all of these are ways not to do it. As you look at that list, are there any ways you see that you need to change? Is there any of these that maybe you've been doing that, that you need to stop doing. Now, God forbid it's the last one, physical harm, and no, no person who's in a relationship where they're being physically harmed should stay in that relationship. You need to get out now. You need to get out now and protect yourself. But many of these others, you know, we can change. Are we willing to make the change? So you go back to the relationship of, of uh, Solomon and the Shulamite, and the question becomes, well, how did they go about resolving their conflict or their potential for conflict? Because we all agree it had all the makings for a big conflict. And I go back to the story again in chapter 5, and I notice that nowhere in the story does Solomon ever lose his temper. So right away, one of the principles I discover in this passage is it doesn't do any good to get angry and upset. You cannot, think about this, how silly it is. You can't force love by getting angry. You can't force love by reasoning. You can't force love by the silent treatment. You say, but if you read that passage carefully, Pastor Dale, he is kind of silent. That's right. But it's not passive-aggressive silent treatment. How many of you have ever received the silent treatment from somebody? do not have to be your spouse, anybody, yeah. How many of you have ever given the silent treatment? Yes. We're all good at that, aren't we? Why do we give the silent treatment? It's because we're holy? No. It's just another way to fight, right? Especially if you know your spouse can't stand it, right? They just can't stand it when you give them the silent treatment. Then it's like, you, you know, you just put the pedal down and really give them the silent treatment. Sol Solomon is silent for a reason. He's not going to let her response control his response. In order for that not to happen, he's got to still the inner voice inside, which I talked about. And in his own silence, all right, in his own silence, he controls himself rather than being controlled by her. Far better to be silent and step back, 
especially when you feel your emotions beginning to boil and you want to give a response. Far better to be silent, simmer down, and get a grip than to open your mouth up and regret what you have said. So no temper, a non-passive-aggressive silence, and a silence meant to hurt, actually silence meant to help. And then, and then I want you to notice that he does not seek to arouse anything in her other than a loving response. Let me show you what I mean. Come back to the passage. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 3 for context again. She says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? She says in verse 4, My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. So in other words, she's saying is, so I could hear him fiddling with the latch, with the lock, like he was trying to put his hand through there and open it. And then she says, I got excited. I decided, oh, well, okay, I'll go open that door. He really wants me. I arose to open for my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh. When I was in college, we used to do this little prank every once in a while um, where we'd take honey, something really sticky, and drip it all over the doorknob and then kind of hide in the corner and watch other guys come to the dorm and grab a hold of the door and have the sticky stuff all over them, all right? It's really juvenile, I know, long time ago. What do you expect? I went to a Christian college. Anyway, uh, what he does is he drips myrrh. He drips a very expensive ointment and perfume all over the bolt, all over the knob or whatever latch they use. And so when she grabs hold of it, right away she smells him. It's like his cologne. And it's, it's so thick on there, she feels it. S. Craig Glickman, who's a scholar, writes on this, says in ancient days, that's how they would leave a love note. When, when your lover showed up and you weren't home, it was like I was here. They would leave that there to remind you of their presence. She said, I rose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I mean, he just poured it on there. And she couldn't help but think of him and, in essence, kind of smell his presence. The, the modern-day equivalent would be to leave a dozen roses. Now, think about this to me for a minute. If you show up and your lover is not there and you leave a dozen roses, that's magnanimous, isn't it? That's what a message to that person. You know, I miss you. And, you know, imagine how that person feels, right? Oh, he left me a dozen roses. Wow, how sweet, how wonderful. But what happens when they are in there and they won't open the door for you? Do you want to leave a dozen roses? Probably want to leave a nasty gram, huh? But that's not how Solomon works. He's the wisest man who ever lived. He doesn't want to arouse anger. He doesn't want to arouse suspicion. He doesn't want to arouse her, you know, feeling shameful or bad or guilty. He just wants her to know that even if she won't open the door, he still loves her. He leaves a message of love. What do you try to arouse out of the person you're in conflict with or the people you come into conflict with? Oftentimes, we try to arouse an explanation, don't we? I remember when I was a kid, we'd get in trouble and it happened a couple of times. 
My mom and dad, I don't understand this. Always, I always know it's a trouble because they would say, Mr., you better explain that. That's, when I, that's the only time it was called Mr., all right? Mr., explain that situation. A lot of times, we just want an explanation, and that's what we try to arouse. You better have a good explanation for what you said, what you did, why you didn't open that door, why you behaved this way at work, why you're treating me this way. Or we want to arouse an apology. So we guilt them, we shame them to get them to the point where they will apologize and admit they're wrong. And we try to arouse a fight. But Solomon doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to arouse love. I'm going to arouse a righteous, good, and godly response out of my bride who's not behaving real godly right now, not real loving, not real compassionate toward me. Think about who you're in conflict with right now. What are you trying to arouse out of them? What should you be arousing in them? Isn't that why Jesus says that we're supposed to even love our what? Our enemies. Which then means, he's saying, arouse a righteous response from your enemy. Not an angry response, not an ongoing feud. And in essence, what Solomon does is he leaves a pathway for her to follow. Back to his heart. Because he wants reconciliation. He wants to be with her. And she knows where he is. I want you to follow the, the, the trail with me. Come to chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 2. She says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. Now, in fairness, if you read the rest of chapter 5, she does go wandering for him, gets kind of hassled by the watchman because she's out in the night trying to find him, asking where he is. But when she finally kind of comes to, she knows where he is. It's in his garden. It's where he loved to spend his time. And so she goes down there, and she says, you know, as I, as I go down there, I, I believe that I am his, and I believe that, that he is mine. But there still had to be, there still had to be a little bit of a question in her mind and heart. How's he really going to feel about me? It wasn't very nice to me. I should have gotten up and let him in. Am I still secure with him? Am, am I, are we still good? Are we still okay? Come down to verse 4, and he speaks now. Now, what do you expect him to say? What would you say? Middle of January, your spouse won't let you in. Finally, they come to the door and they open it. What are you going to say to them? What if your kids come in late, pass the curfew hour? What are you going to say to them? What if the employee shows up late? What if they don't do their job? What are you going to say to them? Watch what he does. You are as beautiful as Tisra, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as the troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. No, not one of them is missing. He loved their hair and teeth, didn't he? Goes on, he says, your temple behind your veil are like the halves of pomegranates. Sixty queens there may be and 80 concubines and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. What does he greet her with? Praise. Praise. He accentuates the good things about her, the things he appreciates and loves about her. Now, does that mean you should never confront the loved one? Of course you should confront them. But maybe you should start with praise first. Maybe we should start by valuing the virtues that are significant in their life before we address the issues that may exist between us. 
Then he praises her. In fact, what's interesting, he uses the same words he used last weekend, but he takes out all the sexual innuendos. So it's as though he's saying, I'm not telling you this because I want sex. I'm telling you this because I love you as much now as I did on our wedding night. Who cares if you didn't let me in? I love you. I'm in love with you. Man, when you look at me, it just melts me. It just melts me. What kind of effect did that have on her? Well, if you come to verse 11, in the NIV it says it's him that's speaking. That's not, that's not correct. It's just a, a, a bad edit on that. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's she who is speaking. She says in verse 11, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. In other words, she's saying, I showed up to see if there was still springtime in our relationship. To see if you still wanted me and watch what happens. Before I realized it, she says, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Before I realized it, I found myself in a Ferrari and we went zooming off into the countryside. In those days, for one to be invited to sit or to stand in the chariot of another was a great pleasurable invitation. And the fact that Solomon would say, come stand in this chariot with me, it was like saying, honey, get in the Ferrari, let's go for a ride. And I love the vivid imagery here because in verse 13, the girls, the, the women of the court, they cry out and they say, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back and come back that we may gaze on you. There they go. In the hot rod, Solomon at the wheel. And there's a play on the Hebrew words here that we don't pick up in the English. In this, in this translation, she's called a Shulamith. And it's a play in the words uh, that is Solomon's name because in the Hebrew, Solomon's name is Shlomo, all right? Solomon sounds better, doesn't it? All right, Shlomo Shulamith. It's like, it's like what the editor is saying to us is the two have become one. You can't hardly tell them apart. They're in that chariot. They're going so fast. It's like they're the same person going together. And there's reconciliation. There's wholeness that takes place there. And they're one again. All because of the attitude that Solomon chose to have toward his wife who didn't want to let him in. What's the attitude you're going to have toward the people that you may come in conflict with, particularly with your spouse or your children? I was reading another scholar on this passage of Scripture, and he said something very profound. He said, by its very nature, the reception of forgiveness, that is, receiving forgiveness, means seeing yourself as the other person sees you. In other words, receiving forgiveness is seeing myself the way the person who wants to forgive me sees me. So at that moment, you are forgiven. Your eyes are off yourself and on another. Guilt had turned her eyes inward, but he brought them outward. She went down to the garden in self-conscious guilt in hope of renewal, and she was met with praise, which turned her eyes from herself to him. And once to him, back to herself through his eyes of forgiveness, he still saw the woman he loved on his wedding night. Now, I want to suggest to you that while the story is literal and true for Solomon the Shulamite, the story has a, has a very deep meaning for you and me, not just in our practical lives, but in our spiritual lives, which affect our practical lives. For in the story, is not Christ our lover? And are we not the ones who are in conflict with God? Not a conflict of God's making, but a conflict of our own making. Our sinfulness, our rebellion, inherited from our first parents, sets us at odd with God. We know it, we feel it. 
Sometimes when I pray, I cry out to God. I say, God, I feel the evil in my heart. I feel the distance. I feel the rebellion. I feel the obnoxiousness. I feel the disobedience in my own soul. And sometimes the Lord stands at the door of our heart and he knocks. Just like in Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come into him and we will have deep and meaningful fellowship together. He's not knocking at the heart of an unbeliever. He's knocking at the heart of the church, which is made up of you and me. He's knocking at our heart's door. And let's be honest, aren't there times, at least in my life, when I respond to him in the apathetic way that the Shulamite responded to Solomon? I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to respond. I don't want to obey. I don't want to do what is right. I want to continue in my ignorance. I want to continue in my rebellion. I want to keep that habit. Or I want to hold that grudge And what does he leave at the door? Just like Solomon left that myrrh dripping from the door so that when she touched it, reminded of his love, doesn't in a sense, doesn't Christ leave the myrrh of his blood on the door, on the latch, on the knob, so that when I see it, I'm reminded of his love for me, how he gave his life for me, how he died for me, and I find a pathway back to God again? I think about the prodigal son story. Remember how the prodigal left home and lived so foolishly when he finally came to an end of himself. He realized there was only one place left he could go. And it was home. And he chose to go home. Why did he choose to go home? Because he knew something about the nature of his father. He knew that he'd be received at home. He wasn't sure how. He had it all planned out. I'll work for you a little while. Then I'll try to pay you back. And while he was a long ways off on the way home, his father saw him. And in the most undignified way as an elderly gentleman in the culture of that time, the father goes leaping and bounding off the porch, down the pathway, arms flailing out until he comes to his son and he takes those arms and he wraps his son in a hug of love, forgiveness, and mercy. You say, but there has to be repentance. There has to be repentance. Don't forget repentance. Listen, repentance never precedes forgiveness. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 18, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If repentance precedes forgiveness, then I can earn forgiveness by how penitent I am. It is God's forgiveness that causes me to repent. It is the Father's wild love for the Son that leads the Son to finally repent. And that is the love of God. And that is the love of God for you, and that is the love of God for me. When I truly experience God's love, I will repent. I want to repent. I'm so sorry. Because I realize how much it hurt him and how much he hurt for me. I come to him with my guilt, looking inward. He raises my head to look upward at him and what he's done for me. Then I see myself by what he's done for me. It frees me now. Listen, it frees me now to go and do the same for you and for others. See, the secret, the key to being able to resolve conflict with other people is to understand how Christ resolved the conflict between you and God. It's to understand how he loves you in order that you may turn right around and share that love with another. What a privilege it is for us to be able to do that. We just have to be able to get past ourselves. Would you bow your heads with me for just a few moments? 
I just want you to think right now, is there someone in your life, at work, at home, maybe in your marriage, that you're in conflict with right now? What's your part in the conflict? See, I didn't cause it. I didn't start it. Good, good. What are you going to do, though, to reconcile it? I mean, God didn't have to reconcile with us. He chose to reconcile with us. We're the ones that started it, but he's the one that went to heal it. God's calling you, if you're a follower of his, to follow the same example in your own relationship. Are you willing? Maybe it starts by apologizing for your part in it. Something you said or did that you shouldn't have. One of the nevers that you did. Maybe it's calming yourself down. Speaking gently, speaking kindly. Maybe it's arousing love. What is it you may need to say? What is it you may need to do? Maybe it's offering invitation back toward reconciliation. I can't make the other person reconcile with me, but I can lay the groundwork. Father, I pray and ask that you would show us that there's somebody in our lives we need to make things right with. Over the course in time, you certainly have shown that to me, Lord. It's not always been easy, especially when I have felt justified in my feelings and my attitude. Lord, you would have been justified to condemn us, but instead you chose to justify us. Because we are the one you loved. Now, Lord, who is the one you're calling us to love? Who's the one at work? Who's the one in the neighborhood? Who's the one in our family? Who's the one that's a stranger that we just need to manifest love to? That others may see your love in us. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you listen to this song?
father's love So let all my life tell of who you are And the wonder of your never-ending love meditating quite a bit in the book of Philippians this past month and I keep coming back to those words in chapter 2 where we are told to think of others more than we think of ourselves and to look out for the interests of others more than our own interests in the context of the gospels that even applies to those who sometimes behave toward us like our enemies which is the opposite of the way the world thinks but it's the way we change the world so may God give you the grace and the power and the strength to love the people that are sometimes a little unlovable, even if they're standing right next to you. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. See you next weekend. If you want a pastor, one of our pastors will be here at the front.